Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. We're going to be focusing on verses 1 and 2. In the next several weeks, we're going to provide brief biographies of each of these apostles. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas, Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Chapter 9 ended with Jesus inviting the disciples, you'll remember, to pray the Lord of the harvest in verse 38. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Well, after prayer comes work. In the space between chapter 9 and chapter 10, we find a brief interlude of prayer by Jesus. It's found in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In between chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus will go to a mountain and he will begin to pray. It says in Luke 6, 12, now it came to pass in those days that he went to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. What happens when we pray? Typically, what happens when we pray is God answers prayers. And so Jesus has invited them to pray the Lord of the harvest. He himself will pray. It's then that we're introduced to all the king's men. And the list will appear here in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. They're already his disciples. But now they're going to enter into a new phase of privilege and power as apostles. The word apostolos means one who is sent. In Matthew's gospel, the word appears one time here in chapter 10, verse 1. And so we discover something. That when we look at the chapter later on, the chapter is going to include instructions that Jesus will give to the disciples living in his day in verses 1 through 15. He's going to also give instructions to future disciples living during a time that the Bible calls the great tribulation in verses 16 through 23. But Jesus will also give instructions to the faithful disciples living throughout church history. And that would include you in verses 24 through 42. This chapter is concerned with the choice and the commission of the 12 apostles and Christ's instructions to them. He is going to send them out on a mission and this first mission is going to be filled with demonic opposition, challenge, special instructions. And so it begins. 
with the call in verse 1. Look what it says. And when he had called his disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. When I was preparing this message, I thought of a very famous statement made by Oswald Chambers. He said, rightly, self-chosen authority is an impertinence. You may not understand what that means. What he basically is saying, where does authority come from? And it can't come from you. We don't choose authority, it it chooses us. In other words, the Bible says that all authority comes from God. And God designates or allows people to exercise authority in different ways. The very first thing that you should notice about the text, it says, and when he had called his 12 disciples, it's Jesus who calls them. They don't decide one day that they're going to wake up. They don't go to school and say, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an apostle. It just doesn't really work that way. You know, you can become educated and become an an attorney or a lawyer or a doctor, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. But the Lord Jesus delegates his power to the apostles to show that he has sovereign authority in both this world and in the next world. And in the physical world, We see the effects of Satan. We see the effects of sin. You don't have to be a keen observer of life on this planet that when you see school shootings take place or horror takes place all around you that we live in a world that's dominated by wickedness and sin. And so it's going to require a special kind of power. And it's going to require a special kind of circumstance. And by the way, the kind of power that is here spoken of had not been known in the Old Testament except under the most incredible of circumstances. There are hints of exorcism. When David plays his music in order to alleviate Saul's demonic oppression, there are hints of healing and isolated instances of miracles. But nothing like this. We saw Jesus speak to them in chapter 5, 6, and 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. We saw Jesus perform miracles in chapters 8 and 9. And now he's going to send his ambassadors to perform miracles and carry a message about his kingdom. But we can't divorce the miracles and the message because the miracles are in part in order to remind everyone about the message. But what does this have to do with you? When Jesus calls someone, he'll also equip them. When Jesus calls you, he will equip you. When Jesus calls you and equips you, he will empower you. And the commission is clear. Preach the kingdom of heaven and go only to the Jews. That's not your commission. That's not my commission. We preach the gospel, but our message isn't limited to Jewish people. As a matter of fact, our message incorporates the great commission that will later be given in Matthew when Jesus tells both the apostles and the disciples to go to all of the world to testify concerning what Jesus has said, to make disciples of the the nations. In a very real sense, John the Baptist did that in chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus did it in chapter 4, verse 17. 
So the miracles that they perform are in part to serve as their credentials that they really represent the king. Anyone can say almost anything about anything. But once you have an amazing message, the amazing message of God's kingdom is coming and the king is here and the king deserves our respect and submission. It's a fairly heady message and it requires some fairly substantial evidence to support it. In a sense, the disciples are called twice. Once was a call to commitment. The next is a call to commission. Just like some of you. When you got saved, when you heard the voice of the Lord, when the Holy Spirit came upon you, when you understood that you were a sinner in need of a Savior, commitment would include formal training and instruction on how to fish for men. Commission would include practical training and actual fishing. You may not know this, but between chapter 9 and chapter 10, a space of time has taken place. The whole ministry of Jesus is going to last about three years. Three years is 12 times 3, math made easy. How many months is that? 36 months for you mathematicians. I know some of you go, I didn't know I was going to have to do times at church. 3 times 12 is 36. Jesus is about 16 months into his ministry already. That means that there's about 16 months left. You see, you may not know it, but the disciples have been disciples for a little while, but now there's going to be a very special commissioning. So what is it about these 12? And why does Jesus do it then? And why does he have 12? What can we know for certain? Well, number one, the apostles were called to him in verse 1. The apostles were given power and authority by Jesus in verse 1. The apostles were 12 in number in verse 2 and 3. The apostles were made apostles by Jesus in verse 2. The apostles included three sets of brothers in verse 2. The apostles are organized two by two for ministry according to God's plan. Later he will send them out two by two. In verse 10 when it says, and when he had called them, it's a very special word. In the ancient world, and in this particular language, it meant a summons. In our culture and society, rarely are we summoned. You might have been summoned if you've ever served on jury duty. You get something in the mail, and it says, you are hereby summoned to appear in court and do your civic duty as a citizen. Can you ignore the summons? No, you cannot. You can, but if you ignore the summons, you also have to be prepared for the consequences. By the way, if you've ever been pulled over, if you've ever been arrested, and you receive a summons to go to court, and they say, you're going to have to go to court, can you ignore the summons? You cannot ignore the summons. If you do, you do so at your own peril, and again, you have to face the consequences. This word has this kind of powerful meaning. It's a compelling call. The word was used in ancient literature to describe a kind of 
face-to-face meeting, a kind of head-to-head confrontation. Jesus went to these men. Jesus goes to them face-to-face and challenges them. And And the call is personal and intense and permanent. They were going to go from hearers and trained to commissioned and ordained for a specific duty. By the way, does that mean that they knew everything about everything? No. Was there still a whole lot that they're going to have to learn? The answer is yes. But now they're being called. They're being sent out by the master. This should provide us at least with a little bit of insight right from the start. And that is that sometimes you can make a commitment to Jesus and you're called by the master. And he asks you to do a specific function. He will equip you and he will empower you. But that doesn't mean that you know everything about everything. But it must mean that you know something about what's most important. And that is what Jesus has asked you to do. And when Jesus asks you to tell your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your family member, your friends, your neighbors, the truth about the gospel, about his love and about grace and about mercy, you're able to do it. Was there any indication that these men had special traits or characteristics that made them physically fit or emotionally stable or spiritually mature or deeply faithful? If you're going to be a linebacker for the Broncos... You have to have a certain skill set and training. If you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, you have to have a certain skill set and training. But what about these guys? What is it about them? By the way, when you read the New Testament, do they seem marked by emotional stability, spiritual maturity, and deep faithfulness? You got it right. And so you sit there and you're going, hey, wait a minute. If that's not what's going on, what is going on? Were they saints? Not in the Roman Catholic sense of the word. Were they scholars? Not in the educational sense of the word. It would appear that Jesus chose them on the basis of what he could make of them by his own power. And now we begin to understand something about ourselves and about the choice that he's made concerning you. You see, Jesus didn't chose you because you're particularly attractive, although many of you are several attractive. By the way, look to the left and look to the right. And if it isn't that person, it's probably you that I'm talking about right now. (laughs) On what basis does he do this? If the gospel tells us anything, they appear to be men, ordinary men with ordinary faults and flaws that are common to almost every man. It's become almost cliche to say that Jesus doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. He doesn't call the qualified but he qualifies the called. In what sense? The moment Jesus says, I love you, and I want you to love me back, and I'm calling you, I'm reaching out to you, I want to speak to you about what it means to have life and love and hope and forgiveness. Jesus does this. And so, what has really happened? What do we know for sure? 
Number one, we know that they've been with Jesus. We know that they touched Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They shared with Jesus. They have heard the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7. They've witnessed the miracles that Jesus has performed in chapter 8, in chapter 9. So it would appear that being with Jesus, hearing Jesus, believing Jesus becomes an important part of whatever it means to be his servant, to be called by him. And servants require training. A servant must first be found faithful and proven. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, but let these also first be tested, Paul writes to Timothy, but let these first be tested, speaking of leaders, let them serve as deacons being found blameless, unquote. So there is a certain time of testing, training, preparation. This is why if you haven't gone through a foundations class, it becomes so important to do so. Or if you, you don't have any real understanding of the gospel or of the Bible. Clearly, being with Jesus is a major prerequisite for service. Paul again tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, on his deathbed, so to speak, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. There's a time of training and a time of preparation, a time of investment. Now you might think nothing is required to serve but that's not exactly true. Jesus first taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul tells Timothy, like I said, you, the things that you've heard and that you've seen me do, you do with others. And what exactly did Jesus teach his disciples? I think you know the answer. Did he teach them about this coming kingdom? Did he teach them all of the stuff that you learned in chapter 5, 6, and 7? Did he teach them that there's a God in heaven, that this God cares about you, and that there's a future judgment that's coming? Does he teach them the gospel? The answer is yes. Does he teach them to pray? Yes. Does he teach them to forgive? Yes. Does he teach them to serve each other in humility? Yes. By the way, do they forgive perfectly? Probably not. Yeah, no is the right answer. Wait, wait a minute. Jesus taught them to, to pray. Does this mean that they became the world's best praying people? Actually, no. Did he teach them to forgive? Yes. Did that mean they became the most forgiving people? No. Did he teach them in humility to serve each other? The answer is yes. Did they do that? Not necessarily. By the way, did they grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth? Did they become more and more willing to pray as they acknowledge their dependence upon God? Did they learn how to forgive each other? Did they learn how to be reconciled in their relationships? Did they, did they learn in humility and selflessness how to serve each other? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. James Emery White wrote in a book, What They Didn't Teach You in Seminary, 
something very, very interesting. This book was given to me as a gift about two weeks ago. And there's a passage in there where he talks about he as a pastor, how he picks his leadership team and how he surrounds himself with men and women in service in the ministry. He, he writes about what he calls the five C's. In the five C's, he talks about character. And then the second C is competence. He uses the term catalytic. And then he uses another term, chemistry. And then he talks about being called. And what I found interesting about these things is, is again, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking about Jesus. And some might argue that Jesus doesn't have five C's and neither should we. After all, Jesus says, have I not chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? Now, again, one of two things is happening. It's like, why in the world would Jesus pick a person for his leadership team that he knows is going to be a betrayer? Would you, would you marry a man on purpose if you knew that he was going to be unfaithful to you? Would you pick a person to be on your staff if you knew that they were going to divide the church? Would you pick a person who you knew was going to come in and ruin your life or ruin your ministry? Well, no. So then why does Jesus do it? We're going to get to that in just a moment. We're sinners. We can't demand perfection from each other, but character matters. Clearly, we all have painful situations and difficulties and setbacks. But character matters, and I agree. White points out in his book, serial sexual predators in the church, people who always struggle with paying their bills, people who are perpetually in debt, people who habitually um, struggle with addictions, people who are habitual, patterned, ongoing problems, speak of something more than just a simple struggle. All of us struggle. There might be an incident of pain, an event that is problematic. But if you're always in debt, if you're always in trouble, if you're always struggling, there might be something else that's going on. The key words are habitual, pattern, ongoing. There could be a character problem. And some people with character problems can't be in the ministry. If you have a character problem where you're dealing with sexual immorality or being a predator or acting out with children, guess what? Should it shock you or surprise you? You're not going to get to be in the children's ministry. By the way, how many of you, if you knew that I allowed a sexual predator to be in the children's ministry, would want me to be fired? Everyone should raise their hand. And you should let me go. There's certain things that are unacceptable. Character matters. 
But he also speaks of competence, raw ability, native talents, essential skills. He speaks of being a catalytic. When he uses the term catalytic, he means energy. He means creativity. He even uses terms like hungry and aggressive. Now, again, when we hear the terms hungry and aggressive, we we might not be good with those words because it sounds so aggressive. He doesn't mean rude, and he doesn't mean weird, and he doesn't mean overly ambitious. I think what he means is he's looking for people who are driven with a deep desire to have their one and only life matter, their one and only life really count for Jesus. And so when a person comes to me and they says, I want to be used by God and I want to serve God, and I say, why do you, do you want to serve God? And they go, because I want my life to be meaningful. I want it to matter. I, I don't want to wake up at the end of the day and wonder whether or not my life really meant something. I like that. He writes, quote, When I describe such people and how I look for them for my teams, many leaders turn a horrified face toward mine. How do you control them? How do you make sure that they don't do something you don't want? My reply is always the same. I would rather rein someone in than have to continually kickstart them into gear, unquote. He's talking about passion. He's talking about a heart. He speaks of chemistry, which is another way of saying, do you like this person? Can you work with this person? And you might be thinking, well, that seems kind of superficial. But in the end, the truth is you will work with certain people well and you will work with other people less well. And so it makes perfect sense that when you have a ministry team and you're calling people together and you're doing the very real work, that people should be able to work together. And finally, he uses the term called. He points out that some people just assume that they're called to a specific ministry. But called doesn't mean skilled and it doesn't mean competent. Called means something entirely different. Again, in the New Testament sense of the word, it means that it is Jesus who's extending the invitation. It isn't the pastor who's calling you. It isn't even the ministry leader who's calling you. What is it that God has asked you to do in Christ? What is that specific thing that you're supposed to do? You see, the truth is if you go to a church only because they pay you, or if you go to a church in the hopes that you might be able to have some sort of job in that church, then guess what? That might not be the perfect motive. Jesus chose his 12 apostles in prayer, through consultation with the Father. Jesus begins by praying and he says, Lord, Father, who do you want on the team? And it doesn't it make sense to you to choose your team exactly the same way? This is why, again, the partner that you choose in life, the ministry that you embrace, the business that you have, all of this I call the preparation by prayer. 
Doesn't it make sense that you ask God and you ask God to give you insight on where you're supposed to go and what you're supposed to do? And I want to point something out about these apostles. Not one of them submitted an application. Not one of them took a personality test. Not a single one of them had a spiritual gifts inventory. It was God's planning. In Mark chapter 3 verse 13 it says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him, unquote. Near the end of his ministry, Jesus reminded them. He said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you. Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you. Now, again, I want you to think about this. He chose them personally, specifically, individually. And what if I told you that's exactly how he's chosen you? Personally, specifically, individually. And you may think, really? Yeah. You may think he chose you reluctantly or with hesitation or reservation because everybody else turned him down. You might be thinking, oh, he must have went there and there and there and there and there. And after being rejected over and over and over and over again, he finally settled on you and you would be wrong. You weren't his second choice or his third choice or his fifth choice or his 50th choice. The Lord Jesus, by God's grace and his mercy through the power of the Holy Spirit, spoke to your heart, spoke to your circumstance and said, I want you to know me and love me and follow me. And that's the point. In part, Jesus said, all that my father has, he's given to me. In John 17, 6, he says, they were yours and you gave them to me. I want you to think about that because the father's choice is the son's choice. Men think they choose their wives, but they choose you. I actually asked my grandma, how does all of this work? When I was very young, she said, they, that girls get together, they actually draw straws when no man is present and whoever gets the short straw has to marry you. I actually believed that for years. I thought, oh, you might think exactly that same way. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all got together. And nobody wanted them except for you, and you would be wrong. Calling includes prayer, but it also calls, involves what I call selection or election, what the Bible calls election. You know, in high school, I was elected student body president. But before I could be the, the president, someone had to nominate me. Back in those days when people were running for office, it was very, very interesting Many of you are old enough to remember John F. Kennedy who was shot and killed and Bobby Kennedy, his brother, was killed and they had another famous brother named Ted. And people kept trying to get him to run for president and he would say, if nominated, I will not run and if elected, I will not serve. 
There are people who could be nominated, but they can refuse. And imagine an invitation is extended to you and God says, I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. I've got a calling for you. I want you to do what I want you to do. But guess what? After that, you have to cooperate. In the Bible, the father nominates you. The son seconds the motion. Can you imagine in heaven, it's the father says, I nominate so-and-so. Jesus says, I second the motion. The Holy Spirit says, all in favor say I. And they all say I. Jesus doesn't select everyone to be apostles. He chose 12 men. He didn't say to the multitudes, I'm now accepting applications for apostle. Please apply. We'll make our selection based on your talent, your intelligence, your character, your ingenuity. There's a certain mystery involved in God's choice. Just like there's a certain mystery in a husband choosing a wife or a wife choosing a husband. Moms and dads don't get to choose their children. God entrusts us with them. Why did Jesus choose these men? We can only speculate. Clearly, they heard Jesus. Clearly, they walked with Jesus. Clearly, they witnessed the miracles of Jesus. Do you think that they truly understood all of the implications of the adventure that they were about to have? I don't think so. By the way, when you agreed to marry that man or she agreed to marry you, when you agreed to take a journey into life, did you, uh, did you know all of the stuff that was going to unfold when you said, I do? Would some of you have said, I don't? <laughs> now, now again, but here's, that's part of the point. People may not fully understand what's going on. But for the Christian, you understand, I don't know everything about everything. But I know there's a God who loves me and he has a plan for me and, and, a, and a focus for me. And by the way, why 12? Why not three? Why not six? Clearly, when he begins with 12, it's almost like his staff is overloaded. And you go, what am I going to find for all these guys to do? Again, it would appear that there was rhyme and reason to what was going on. By the way, 12 in the Bible is the number of government, of organization? Is Jesus hinting at a new government, a new organization, a new way of doing things? He may have chosen the 12 disciples to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a little clue that's given to us in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, John receives a vision of the heavenly Jerusalem, the future city, the eternal state. And on this city, there's 12 foundations. And on those foundations are the names of the apostles. Could it be that God knows what he's doing and Jesus knows what he's doing? That God has a plan and a purpose 
there's rhyme and there's reason to what he's doing. There was a Sunday school teacher who was instructing a group of teenage boys about Jesus' disciples and their abilities and their attributes and why Jesus chose them. And when he was getting towards the end of the lesson, one boy raised his hand and he said, well, then why did God choose Judas? And the teacher said, simply, son, I don't know, but I have a harder question. Why would he choose me? Why would he choose me? And why would he? Why would he choose me? Why would he choose you? On what basis has God made the choice to rescue you? What if I suggested to you that whatever that basis is, it's because he loves you and he has a plan for you and he has a purpose for you that only you can fulfill. He has a place that only you can go. He has a person that only you can meet. He has someone that only you can serve. And look what it says. He calls them, he selects them, and then he personally empowers them. That's what the text says. He gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. The reason why I think this becomes important is that Jesus will never ask you to go somewhere. He'll never ask you to do something and fail to equip you or empower you for that specific service. Now, again, I want you to think about the text and I want you to think about the context. In the first century, there are many people, they're wandering around the earth. They're with Jesus. They're, they're living in that world. They're Deceived by darkness, they're possessed by evil spirits, they're afflicted with every kind of sickness and every kind of disease. And Jesus gave these apostles specific powers to minister to people, to deliver people, to exercise power and authority in the name of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. The power that Jesus imparts is directed against Satan. It's directed against demons. It's directed against sickness and sin. Why is all of this important? The, the reason why it's important is because the Holy Spirit doesn't empower men and women to glorify themselves, to elevate themselves, to enrich themselves. In other words, this gifting isn't so that you can make a lot of money or so that you can be some sort of fabulous model. Does God give certain people athletic abilities? The answer is yes. Does he give them mental and emotional stability? I think that the answer is yes. There are people who have a certain skill set which gives them certain abilities so that they can enrich themselves. And sometimes in the process of enriching themselves, they can enrich others. But the supernatural gift empowering and calling of Jesus is never for yourself. It's always to elevate God. It's always to point people to Jesus. It's always to expand the kingdom. It's always to enrich the saints. 
And so in one sense, the power of God cannot go or flow where it was never meant to go or flow. The Holy Spirit isn't a force that you tap into. And for the person who says, then why can't I do this? Why, why don't I have power over unclean spirits? Why don't I have the power to cast them out? Why don't I have the ability to heal all kinds of sickness? Why can't I heal all kinds of diseases? Let me ask you a question. Can you do the most simple thing that Jesus has asked you to? To love him. And serve him. And follow him. And obey him. And pray for others. And then in humility serve them. And you might think, well, only in an imperfect way. And some of you might even say, I don't really do that at all. So you want to be able to have power over spirits and heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease, but you won't even do the most basic and simple things. By the way, to the question, are there people who can cast out demons? Are there people that God uses to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease? I think that the answer is yes. I think that the answer is yes, that if God calls a person and equips a person and asks a person to do something specifically, then he will give them the power to do that. I don't have the power to do this. You might have some terrible, besetting situation in your life and you go, Gino, I just want you to pray that it goes away. <laughs> and I will pray. But I have no such power. Only God, by his Holy Spirit, has the power to deliver people. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Think about what we've seen. Jesus prays and selects his team. And then he empowers his team. Later, in verse 7, if you just sneak ahead for just a moment, he'll give them the mission. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus commands them to preach the gospel. And the reason why he commands them to preach the gospel is because human beings are in desperate trouble. We're sinners in need of a savior. Humanity has been alienated from God and separated and isolated and traumatized. Sin has taken its toll. It has begun to wear on us and it begins to overwhelm us. And the presence of sickness and, and the presence of all kinds of de demonic weirdness begins to take place. And judgment becomes inevitable. And so no wonder Jesus says, I have a message for you. I have a message for you. The message is that there's grace and there's mercy and there's healing. There's love and there's power in the gospel. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He rose for, for your justification and he's going to return for your glorification. There's power in preaching. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of the gospel. Now, the reason, again, why all of this becomes important is because I love funny stories. I love jokes. I love impressions. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he would preach, sometimes he would say the most outrageous things and a little old lady came up to him and said, Sir, I think that you're taking levity with what's been entrusted to you in that pulpit. You seem to joke way too much. And Spurgeon said, Madam, if you only knew. He wanted to turn every single sermon into a comedy routine. Sometimes I want to also. A joke can make you laugh. It can entertain you for a moment. But it's only the gospel that can change you and save you. It's only the message of grace and mercy by the power of the Holy Spirit that will cleanse sin, eliminate guilt, impart life. Only the gospel can do that. Only the word of God can do that. The scriptures imparted by a person who believes it and trusts that God will make good on the gospel is going to be a powerful thing. There was a missionary in Vietnam who was giving a Bible study with an unbelieving skeptic and this person walked into the meeting and the teacher opened his Bible and he says, my text today is from Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. The person's name was Lo Doc Tao. And Lo Doc Tao said, okay, I'm going to see what this guy has to say. He opens his Bible and it says, Lo, I am with you always. <laughs> and Lo goes, Jesus said he was with Lo. <laughs> yeah, we might think, how could something as silly as that? But Lo thought about it for just a moment. And he heard the gospel. And he responded to the gospel. This is what's really interesting to me. There's power in the gospel. That's what saves people. Jesus will ask these men to do the impossible. If you doubt it, look in verse 8. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. Freely you've received. Freely give. How is that even possible? How can you do that which is not even possible? The only way you're going to be able to do anything is when you understand and accept that the moment that Jesus says, I am going to ask you to do some things, but I'm never going to ask you to do a single thing that I won't equip you and empower you to do it. So what is it that Jesus has asked you to do? Has he asked you to ignore the Gentiles? No. Has he asked you to heal the sick or cleanse the leper or raise the dead or cast out demons? I'm going to suggest to you that he hasn't asked you to do that, but he has asked you to love him and follow him and obey him and to serve each other in humility and that you can do that. Ministry can be stressful. It can be draining. It can be a drag. But only if you're doing what God has forbidden you to do. If you're doing something 
and you hate it, there are two kinds of burdens. Those were called to bear and those that were forbidden to bear and ministry should be fresh and life-giving and joyous and rewarding because the truth is you find yourself doing exactly what it is that God has called you to do, gifted you to do, empowered you to do. Well, what if God asks me to do something that's impossible? Then he's going to give you the power to do it. What if he asks you to do something impractical? You should be able to do that right now. <laughs> How do I know I'm called? The gospel is a call to everyone to turn from sin and accept the Savior. Paul prayed to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, 18, and 19. He says, he prays. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you a spirit of wisdom and perception of what is revealed to bring you to the full knowledge of him. May he enlighten the eyes of your mind so you can see what hope his call holds for you. How rich is the glory of the heritage he offers among his holy people. How extraordinarily great is the power that he has exercised for us as believers. When you sing the song earlier, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. Did you ever wonder what you were, what you were singing and why you were singing it? Part of the point of the song is that you will open the eyes of your heart so that you will see the Lord, you will hear his voice, you'll begin to understand your call and walk in it. God's created you for some definite service. He's called you to some specific work. It hasn't been entrusted to someone else. It's been entrusted to you. What is your mission? What is your call? And again, I'm going to give you a hint. Clearly, it involves loving Jesus, hearing Jesus, obeying Jesus. It involves loving each other and serving each other. It may even include sacrifice or deprivation. And how do you know? How do you know? How do you know? you're going to experience a supernatural attraction to God, to Jesus, to the message of Jesus, and to the cross of Calvary. Because in each of the instances of the men that we are going to look into their lives, the moment that Jesus calls them and he says to them, follow me, there's left that amazing question. Where? Where are you going? And he's going to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to go to Calvary. There are four lists given in the New Testament. Here in verse 2 it says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter. And Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, Judas, Ishkiriot. Judas prays, Ish, man, Kiriot, the village where he's from. Eleven of them are Galileans. One of them 
is not like the rest of them. The list is given in Mark chapter 3, Luke chapter 6, verse 13, Acts chapter 1, verse 13. In all of the lists, they're grouped in fours. In every list, Peter is first. In every list, Judas is last. And some people have, have suggested, well, there might be contradictions because there's variations in names and order. But I'm going to suggest to you there is no contradiction whatsoever. Bartholomew, verse 3, is universally identified with Nathaniel. In John chapter 1, verse 45, probably his surname, son of Ptolemai, Bartolomeo, par, son of Ptolemai. Simon, the Canaanite, Greek, but a zealot, member of a strict sect. So we have in Luke chapter 6, verse 5, he's called Simon, called Zelotes. There are two men named James from the twelve. One, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. The other called the less, who has the son of Alphaeus, whose brother is Jude, named Thaddeus, who's also called Labius, but it's a nickname. It means courageous in verse 3. All of the disciples are from Galilee except for Judas. Now again, Jesus makes a choice based on the sovereign will of God, the plan of his father, the choice is made after prayer, the choice is limited to 12 men, they don't seem to be special men, but ordinary men. And the choices seem strange to us. Why would Jesus choose a tax collector and a political zealot? That would be like saying, okay, we're going to get one guy who hates our country and another guy who loves our country. Why doesn't he pick the rich? Why doesn't he pick the educated? Why doesn't he pick the elevated? Because most people in the world aren't rich. Elevated educated. Jesus is going to pick people, not many wise, not many noble. Paul will write exactly that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame those who are mighty Foolish, weak, base, despise, to bring nothing to things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, the wise, the noble. They don't always want a savior. They want what they want. And so in the weeks ahead, we're going to take a little character study and personality study. We're going to take a quick look at profiles and courage. In 1956, John F. Kennedy wrote a book. It was called Profiles in Courage. It had a little profound effect on me as a kid growing up. The book won the Pulitzer Prize. They made it into a video. And I read the book of stories of courage. And we're going to take a quick look at Peter and James and John. We're going to see... Peter, a man of action, bold, impulsive. John, a man of prayer. We're going to see Bartholomew and Matthew, a guy given to dreams. Thomas, famous for skepticism. Matthew, who many thought was a stooge for Rome. And Simon the Canaanite, who was a card-carrying radical. 
ready to overthrow the government. God in every age calls men and women. Bunyan, Bonhoeffer, Billy Graham, and me, and you. And the choice that Jesus makes is never made apart from wisdom, contaminated by feelings or restricted by culture. So why does Jesus choose humble men, provincial men, flawed, failed human beings? It's in order to give you hope. It's to remind you that the answer to your question, why would God choose someone like me? Why would God choose someone exactly like you? It's because he's going to send you to a place that only you can go with a message that only you can give. You guys ready for the adventure? It's going to take place the next few weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for your grace. Lord, we know that in order to really understand our call and exercise it, we have to be with Jesus, learn from him, learn from his word, fellowship with Jesus in prayer and devotion, delight in the Lord. And Lord, we understand that the power that's given to us, that that power is directed against the devil and it's directed against evil and it's directed against sin, that ours is a spiritual warfare fought against evil that seeks to possess the hearts and minds of men and women and that we have a different message, a message of love, a message of hope, a message of grace, and a message of forgiveness that has the absolute power to drive away the darkness. Lord, we pray that we would be open even as we sang, open the eyes of our, our heart. Help us see exactly where we belong and what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.